show. Now I know that love for sure. Uh, show that. Yeah. We can't move too fast. A year, hit the block, just in white. Straight old Jackson Knights. Call my partner Mike, cop the pint. Oh, in my strike. 55 and line, that's alright. Cause I'm about to light. Pussy on my mind, bitch, you tired. Them out the night, weedin' wobbles in the morning. Downtown Chicago, smoking all some shit that I imported. MD may light up a day, sometimes she like to snow it. And shit was too dry with that Tony, bitch. Now I'm reloaded, bitch. I'm reloaded, and I'm chopping up the heart. Yo, boy, I play my part. Yeah. with the gangster type, ain't got no stripes, can use a mark. Smoking Carolina, blue fresh out the Carolina park. So much gun play in the day, this might be safer than the dark. No safety, the owner got no patience. So please don't make my finger and this trigger make relations. Said this lock ain't got no safety. Straight make your ass a patient. Yes, I sing until my grave will take that federal vacation, nigga. Nigga. Alright. Hi everybody and welcome to Agitator. Today we're talking our first bit of extreme Japanese literature instead of cinema or video games. A very special guest to talk about these books, which are in the miso soup and piercing by Ryo Murakami. And that guest is Adam Lair. What's up, Adam? Kelby, James, thank you so much for having me on the show today. It's quite a pleasure. I've been listening to all your back episodes, and it feels it feels like uh, quite an achievement to add to this growing lexicon of yours. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of System of Systems and Safety Propaganda. And I read Communions, which Ooh. I liked very much. We'll talk about that towards the end of the show, because I think everybody should read that book. But I want to just get into these two books, because I've done I've done book podcasts before, not on Agitator, but I've done them uh, back when I had my other podcast that nobody listened to. And, you know, I had an episode where we talked about Death in Venice which is a short book and it took two episodes and we're talking about two books. So I figured we would just kind of jump right in, but I'll leave it up to y'all, which one we want to talk about first, Miso or Piercing? Probably Piercing, just cause it was the one that I had time to reread. Um, okay, right on. And Miso Soup's been years, but you know, I still basically remember it. Okay, cool. Kelby, you want to summarize Piercing? We can talk about it. So Piercing is about this dude who's going to uh, stab his baby. Yeah. So to prevent himself from doing that, because he's got this thing about stabbing individuals with ice picks, and he's got this newborn baby that he doesn't want to kill. So he goes on this like convoluted quest to hire a prostitute to stab her. And... The prostitute he ends up getting has her her own shit going on that kind of uh, prevents him from going through with it because she's a kind of kind of a nutcase <laughs> and she's got a nipple ring. Uh, there's a lot going on with pain, inflicting and receiving pain. And whenever she enters the, the narrative, the structure switches to this like sort of uh, 
from this third person following our uh, our ice pick protagonist to bouncing between him and being inside the head of the the prostitute as well and that's the basic premise of it very short fast-paced thriller type fare yeah well it's interesting about ryu murakami is he's definitely one of those writers who i think one of the reasons i identify with him a lot is because uh earlier in his career he he did like every other thing besides writing as a creative discipline you know he did music he did experimental film and that was the same as me i was a photographer and a mixed media artist before and i had to fail like everything before i decided writing was the thing that i could actually do something with and his work does have this kind of extremely sort of uh imagistic um highly aesthetic flow to it all his books even the longer ones are like page turners in a weird way um and piercing's like an extreme example of that because it's a like I read the whole thing in one sitting yesterday when I was coming down from ecstasy after my bachelor party. And nice. um, it's cool because like, well, the first line is just fantastic. It's like, they don't realize that some of us, some of us break out. It's not the first line, but it's, you know, at the beginning, they don't realize that some of us break out in a cold sweat, just a glimpse of that shiny pointy tip. And so right away, you got this like gripping thing where this guy is uh, struggling with violent impulses, but he's not, you know, a pure sociopathic killer because he's clearly in great turmoil about uh, these atrocities building up inside of him. Um, and then like the whole book just kind of goes to confound expectations. He's sort of methodically, there's a chapter where he's methodically planning out how he's going to pull off this murder. But then the introduction of, um, what's her name again? What was her name? I was trying Chiaka. to remember that. Chi- Chi- Chiara oh yeah, Chiaka. Yeah. Chiaka. Yeah, the introduction of her just functions as like a total wrench in the plot because the entire book changes and it becomes like both a uh, a cat and mouse thriller, a battle of wits, but also in a weird way, a, a total like romance story because I always get the sense reading this thing that they're actually like soulmates. And, you know, he obviously loves his wife, but he finds like, he finds like a different kind of uh, peace with this woman, which keeps like holding him back from like killing her. Or like he finds that he can be himself in a way that he really can't. And maybe that it's okay to be himself. So, yeah. yeah. Even his inner monologue is saying like, you know, uh, we, we can't kill her because she's a kindred spirit. Right, right, yeah. She's... um. And it sucks too, because I watched that adaptation that came out. So now I can't even like picture Japanese people when I'm reading <laughs> the book. I just picture uh, Miyawa Sakowska and the, the handsome guy from Girls. Um, Wait, did you guys see movie the movie of Piercing? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it's not that bad either. It does that huh. whole shining thing. Yeah. Where um, I was, I was wondering actually, as I was reading that, because, you know, I'm such a big fan of like audition and Tokyo decadence and stuff like I was wondering how piercing could be adapted because so much of it takes place in the two characters heads. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, it's even like less like it does like you know how the shining sort of works better as a film because they they uh kubrick you know basically erases all the expository so you have no idea mm. whether it's real whether it's fake it all becomes this sort of puzzle uh they do a similar thing in the movie where you don't know his abuse his background of abuse or hers it's just like these two supremely fucked up people and mm. then it becomes like this uh like it's very erotic mm -hmm. and uh that guy christopher abbott who lena dunham discovered is actually becoming quite a tremendous actor um but yeah yeah the yeah. book um the book the book is definitely like it's like two inner monologues playing out at the same time it's mm -hmm. not even so much a unique novel like you know i feel like you know, it is, it is like a, a scary kind of thriller. It's just like, it's just something so specific about the way that he writes yeah. that makes it seem unique. Yeah. I was thinking about that when I was reading Piercing and also when I was reading Miso, that what really makes some of the shit that he writes so disturbing is that he doesn't change his writing style tonally when things start getting fucked up mm -hmm. and i've edited a ton of horror books uh, i don't really read it much for fun anymore but i've read a bunch and there's always whenever mood wants to be set you get a lot of you know dark language and everything starts to get really spooky but what's fucking scary about this dude is that it's the same if he's describing to you like someone's out it's very american psycho in that way right like it whether he's describing someone's clothes or you know the noodles that they're eating or how japanese people are lonely it's tonally the exact same as like in miso when frank is trying to stuff a severed ear into a decapitated woman's pussy it's like the same <laughs> shit you know <laughs> and i think that's what's really unsettling about piercing as well he you know he tends to i think pinpoint in most uh because this is in miso as well and obviously it's an audition but he pinpoints the source of most people's psychosis in childhood abuse so what brings the two protagonists of piercing together is that they were both abused as a child so our hero whose name i can't remember <laughs> because I'm retarded and it's a Japanese name. Uh, it was beaten up by his mom, who's like slapped around, covered in ammonia, uh, left for long periods of time. And then the girl just got the, the good old fashioned daddy rape, which is kind of Murakami's standby. Her dad yeah. would uh, make her not take a bath for days and then lick all of the dirt off of her. <laughs> yeah. so basically uh his his 
idea with these books seems to be that when that happens to you as a child, you are obviously still looking for love. So you begin to think of those violent things that happen to you. You rationalize those things as love so that you can stay right. close to your, to your parents. Uh, but there's something so, uh, so creepy and I think uniquely Japanese about the, the horror in these books, right? About how like you can't, I don't know if this would read better if you were from Japan or you know if there's something missing for me because I'm a Westerner, but there's just something so alien about these people and their little fetishes and their, their weirdness that, that reads as doubly creepy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that, you know, especially being a Westerner and engaging with Japanese culture is like the thing that initially attracts about it is that everything seems like a more extreme version of what we have here. You know, my first uh, dalliances with Japanese culture were Japanese horror films and uh, noise music. And both of that, you're looking towards it like, wow, these Japanese are total fucking freaks. Um, And it's weird because... Ryu Murakami, we think of him as a transgressive fiction writer, avant-garde in a way, but these books are actually really accessible. Um, Even mass market in a way. I mean, he has 30 fucking novels and almost 10 of them are uh, translated all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's like a very big, successful writer. Um, So like, we're... But, you know, but I don't I don't think that's a weakness at all. Like to me, it's a, a real skill to be able to make something that's incredibly legible uh, and at the same time, totally shocking and disturbing. That said, if I did think piercing had one weakness, uh, mm-hmm. it's the over explaining of the trauma. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think it would have been cooler if we weren't totally sure why that these people were so fucked in the head. Um, but I'm not going to hold that totally against it because like the, the, the bulk of the book happens between the, the hooker and the, and the main character. So like um, that's why we're reading it is sort of a battle of wits that happens for the last like two thirds of the novel. Yeah, and the structure of this thing is crazy, too. It makes sense that he was, like, in a, into music before because it has, like, kind of a rhythm to it, this very um, back and forth, like, it, it's not a, uh, it's it's not a, a, a page type of bouncing around. It's more like a, a feeling about, if it has a musicality to it, the way he jumps from this character's head to the other character's head, uh, in the middle of their own thoughts and everything and the propulsive like i had no idea when it was going to end um or what was going to happen next because the structure of of piercing especially uh in the miso soup has its own kind of like experimental uh narrative uh structure too but like piercing is it's not three act it's not it it's not single location uh but it it's you really don't know where it's going to go next and then you for sure i did not expect it to end where it did either 
So I think yeah, that, it, that, it know, ends kind of cozy, right? Yeah, it's got like yeah. a nice. It's almost like that's their that's their new life together. You know, I mean, he wakes up and she's, you know, piercing her nipple, which always gets me, dude. I had a friend named Rich, and he was like, you know, like a punk band dude or whatever, and he wanted to pierce his nipples in my buddy Eric's garage, and <laughs> I remember Lance had the the long needle. And I remember it got like halfway through, but wouldn't go the rest of the way through. And I'll just never forget like his fucking nipple all the way out with this, this like rich screaming. He's just like, just push it through, just push it through <laughs> fucking blood coming out and shit. So anytime, anything with like nipples, whether it's the scene in Itchy the Killer where the hooker gets her, her nipple sliced off across oh, the, yeah. like that shit just bothers me. I don't even have sensitive nipples, but it's just, just fucks me up. Maybe even more than ball stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was going to say it's probably just like an erogenous zone thing, but mm -hmm. uh, if, if the balls don't hit you the same way, it could be even more specific than that. <laughs> the balls don't hit you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, well, how do you guys picture Sinatra looking? not having seen the movie do you you know do you see her as a very sexy that's what i pictured i pictured like a bpd you know one of those kind of hot chicks who's kind of busted but like you just you know would be fun because she's got all these issues right and he seems kind of smitten with her as soon as he walks she walks in the room um but yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly, like I thought Mia Wasikowska was kind of like good casting just because like I picture someone who's like sexy, but kind of dowdy at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, it's honestly like a, a more extreme scenario of something that many men have like had, in, you know, in their lives. You know, uh, I, you go to like a strip club, for instance, mm -hmm. and you go in a, a private room and, you know, you have this whole thing in your mind that it's like, it's transactional. It's not going to be romantic. Mm -hmm. But um, strippers are like still human beings. So if there's like... Kind uh, of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's like a chemistry there, I think uh, what makes it so extra erotic is the fact that the transactional nature of the encounter sort of dissolves away at a certain point, not just for the man either, but for mm -hmm. the stripper or the woman in question. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> uh, so, so like, I think that is kind of like in the book, in the way the book is kind of like this relatable encounter because the guy goes in looking for a specific thing, a, a specific gratification, mm -hmm. but he comes, he, the experience itself becomes much more intense uh, and much, uh, much more romantic. And, and he ends up connecting with the human being in a way that he's never connected with anyone else. So the mm -hmm. story, no matter how dark, it actually is, uh, I, I, I read this thing as like a, almost like an erotic romance novel. 
And yeah. I think that might be yeah. its like greatest trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely got that too. Erotic was the first word that I thought of when I was reading it. And it also has vibes. Do you remember there was a, there was like a German guy who wanted to, he was, in, he was a gay dude and he wanted to like eat someone's wiener or maybe just eat somebody in general. I forget what it was, but he put an ad out in the personals and he was like, you know, oh, yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm German. I want to eat you. And some guy thought that was a fucking good idea. So he like hit him up and was like, Hey, uh, you can eat me. Uh, and it wasn't like a Johnny Depp, the brave situation or anything. I don't think anybody got paid. It was just this kind of transactional cannibalism. Uh, that's kind of where, you know, whenever he's thinking that she wants to die and that he's the guy to do it, I got those vibes from it too, right? And I think that it, that's saying something really interesting about relationships in general, uh, about how when you, when you kind of find your person, you're sort of agreeing to slowly kill each other, right? And I mean that in the most you know, loving way possible, but you, you sort of are participating in the, you're, it's like, <laughs> this is gonna be misinterpreted wildly, but it's like when you get a dog, right? And you, you buy the dog and you're kind of making a, what's that stupid joke? Like you buy a dog and you're basically agreeing 15 years from now to be really fucking sad. A heartbroken, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, that's kind of a, a long-term relationship too you know what i mean because we are going to aid each other like through life and everything like that but we're i mean we're on the road to oblivion together essentially till death do us part it's right there in the language of the of the ceremony and so these novels i think for as short as it is is really good at you know squeezing that down to a a a pulpy little diamond right and kind of uh mythologizing that that relationship impulse mythology yeah yeah murakami does a lot of mythologizing because if you were to look at these novels which are like thriller uh psychological you know they go into and miso soup goes into the like kind of serial killer mind and like uh you know why people are born kind of fucked up and whatever and like but from like in western hands that'd be more exploring the psychology shit and probably like taking a moralistic standpoint as well like we don't ever even see in piercing we don't ever see dude's baby again or or his family just in general you know and it's but it's not a story about uh if he's right to leave his family or whatever or if he's doing the right thing it's a these are basically mythological creatures who who murakami is exploring these kind of uh questions of humanity through so Mm. and i i really dug that in both but like uh miso did that as well and i'm curious to read more of his shit past this to see if he's kind of like like if he's like a myth maker basically i'm curious real quick is the german cannibal guy is that what marion dora's cannibal movie is about oh i have no idea i have no idea i just remember hearing about this on all the i think i read it in bizarre magazine 
They used to have those at Hastings. They always had like, you know, a chick with a split tongue with a Betty Page haircut on the cover. And yeah. They used to go through that and they would have all the weird shit that was happening uh, that month. But it would make sense. It's pro- I think it's probably a pretty, uh, pretty famous story. But I like that, uh, Kelby, that you mentioned the that you never really see the baby again. I like that Murakami has his uh, Yoko, his wife, be a, a baker. So she literally always has a bun in the oven, even when she has, you know, she's already had the baby, but there's that like baking bread. Mm-hmm. She's, home, she's a homemaker to the nth degree, right? So everything's turned up. She's not just a wife that he settles down with. He's literally, she's literally running a small coven of women who are baking bread all day and who take care of the baby and who, when he wants to mysteriously disappear to a hotel for a week, says, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you, sh- you should do that. Yeah, it's almost like she knows exactly what he is going through and, and yeah. what he needs to an extent. Right. Um, which is like, because he's told her everything about himself, which is, I guess, what kind of makes their relationship unique is that he was like, look, I mean, well, not everything. He didn't tell her yeah. about the first murder he committed mm-hmm. um but she knows about all the abuse and she's obviously uh, like a, a tender caring woman because she has allowed this wounded fuck into her life um i love the description of the first murder though uh, mm-hmm. when he's like you know, it's an older woman and she's like a prostitute and she's just like the most vile sounding beastly woman ever who just like Mm -hmm. beats him every single night. She beats him for not protecting her from the men that she fucks. And then she beats him for beating the shit out of the men she fucks saying that he's ruining Mm -hmm. her business. So the whole thing is almost setting it up like, um, the whole woman like existed merely as a as a way for him to deal uh for him to offload that tension mm-hmm. so basically that's what he's looking for again is another perfect victim but right. you know the the kink in the story becomes because like this woman's not a perfect victim she's a uh she knows she knows what his deal is really quickly it seems like and then uh, that sort of it, it becomes like a will they won't they thing about murdering each other um, <laughs> and of course piercing itself is still like you know piercing it's still very like charged erotic imagery so it's about it's about sex and murder at the same time and, and that's a running theme throughout all his books is like uh, death drive and erotic desire sort of like intertwined all the time mm-hmm. so with um this book and miso and audition again every murakami book that i've read i have to assume that if murakami doesn't actually have ocd or suffer from compulsions he understands them very well because in piercing in particular the urge to stab the baby to death with an ice pick is again that kind of heightened uh, hyperbolic distillation of what people who have obsessive compulsions deal with all the time so my question to both of you two is have i'm not talking about killing a baby 
you can keep that to yourself if you want to mm. but do either of you deal with compulsions and do you think that this this book did a good job of portraying that or uh yes and absolutely yeah i mean i was a heroin addict for upwards of 10 years mm-hmm. and then uh i actually just rewatched train spotting 2 which is I've never seen train spotting 2 yeah like nobody has and i think mm-hmm. it's kind of a a tragedy because as a sequel it's like actually fantastic it's like as good as you could have possibly hoped for for revisiting these characters really? 20 years after yeah it's it's great um so anyways renton is trying to help spud finally get off junk after decades and he's and uh spud you know they, he takes him on a run up through the hills in edinburgh and at the end spud feels all good this is what i need i need to get the toxins out of me and renton says nah you're still thinking about this all wrong um you don't overcome a, di- a drug addiction by ridding yourself of addiction because that compulsive mindset that we all have, it doesn't go away. So you need to find something, you need to find new addictions. And that is completely the way that I got off drugs. Uh, sometimes, you know, some, some addictions can be positive, you know, compulsive exercise or, um, working and accomplishing goals and then some can be every bit as negative such as excess cooming on instagram or (laughs) whatever (laughs) um but especially like in the culture we live in uh digital culture our compulsions are uh encouraged pretty much all day every day and i definitely still to this day have moments where i feel overwhelmed by them Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'd say so i uh, to to both points as well with the addiction shit and or that just impulse that comes with sort of an addictive mindset uh that isn't always necessarily focused on i'm gonna stab a baby with an ice pick or i want to shoot up heroin or like with me i was really into speed and lean um and but it's not always just that it's also being in that frame of mind where you sometimes have those thoughts of like, I'm going to just drive my car off the bridge and not in like a melancholic way, not in like a depressed suicidal way, just like that instant. And then, but in, uh, to where it's heightened, it's not like passive. It's like, shit, don't actually, like you're telling yourself, don't actually right. fucking do that. You know, cause you feel like you actually might like, I definitely, feel that especially whenever um probably because to me it's the scariest scene as far as it like him not wanting to stab his kid you know especially in that first scene with the crib I I like that's sort of yeah I connect to that where it's like that sort of impulse that you really really feel you strongly have that you also are like I can't I cannot do this. Like that's terrifying. And I think he pulled it. I think he pulled it off really well. Yeah. It's horrible. It's like, we're all kind of bifurcated, you know? And um, I don't know if everybody feels this, but I certainly do. There's the part of you 
that you know is good for yourself, um, that you try to carry yourself as, and in a sense is the way that you present yourself to others. So it's the real you, but then there's your dark id uh, that you like, silence most of the day all of the day and then yet come screaming back at the most inopportune moments um and in a way it sucks because it's also the thing that makes life interesting it's like the spice of life or whatever but uh this guy is just like it's like a very but it's like a very banal common thing that he's dealing with but it's just metastasizing in this very specific and uh insidious manner well i didn't want to jump around too much but you just uh triggered something in my head about communions Mm. because one of the things that i think you did really well in this book because for listeners who don't know it's a series of short stories or vignettes uh all told from the point of famous artist junkies right so there's Mm. william burroughs jean-michel basquiat there's a great dialogue set in purgatory between Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. Um, but something, the question that keeps getting hammered over and over and over again in the book is, you know, do, is it important? Are drugs important for the artistic process, right? Is getting high and getting fucked up and engaging with that dark id that you just mentioned, is that necessary to maintain a kind of level of artistic genius. And the book I think is really good about saying uh, kind of. Yeah, not necessarily, that's basically what I believe. Yeah, not necessarily yes or no. The way that I interpreted what's going on in the book is that it is insofar as it is a kind of hermetically sealed portion of your life right? If you have a specific time period that you're letting that id run rampant, you're doing, you're having the experiences and you are taking the drugs, having the sex, getting into the, getting your shit kicked in, right? Mm -hmm. But it becomes a problem if you, you know, who is the, uh, this is the one vignette that I didn't know is the woman who was getting shot up by Carl, Carl. Oh, Anna Cavan. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't familiar. She's a, she's a fantastic uh, surrealist writer uh, who came to prominence mainly in the sixties, but she'd been writing for a long time after that. Ballard kind of put her on and Carl was her therapist and they had a bizarre uh, psychosexual friendship. And he prescribed her like mountains of heroin and morphine for like 25 years. They said by the time that he died, she had already stashed away something like kilos of smacks. So she had like a lifetime supply. Yeah. And her chapter in particular is where I felt it the most. And it's interesting that it's as close. I can't remember if it comes exactly before or a few before the Basquiat chapter, right? Because in the Basquiat chapter, you know, he's, that actually felt pretty cool to me. Like some of these like guys, like some of these vignettes, it actually seems cool. Like it reminded me of some fun times that I've had with my friends, right? But then there's that thing where it's like, yeah, but if you kind of get old and you're just sort of using all the time and you can't rein it in, 
that's where the problem right it seems like sad and pathetic and weak mm-hmm. um you know my mom was here last week uh because i had a reading mm-hmm. so you know my mom has never gotten me to uh, see me do the you know wildly famous artist thing mm-hmm. famous beyond anyone's wildest no i'm just kidding <laughs> um yeah, Madison Square Garden, right? Yeah, exactly. I did a reading at Madison oh, Square no. Garden, Nine Inch Nails Open. It was great. <laughs> uh, but anyways, like my, my mom and my stepmom were sort sorry, my mom and my mother-in-law were kind of uh, connecting throughout the week. And my mom was talking about the fact that when I was young, I really wasn't a misbehaved child at all. I was kind of like a fucking angel. But yeah, by too. the time that I was 14, totally changed yeah me too 14 dude yeah that was exactly it and uh the way she described it is that it wasn't like i was a particularly malicious or cruel person in any way but i was just driven by this like profound curiosity and and you know i had to try everything you know that Mm -hmm. that that you know that was that could uh metastasize and wanderlust it could metastasize and um misbegotten sexual encounters and it certainly metastasized in heavy drug use now obviously uh a lot of me does wish that i had never tried opiate drugs like for sure i lost a lot of fucking time Mm -hmm. um but on the other hand would I be the same person if I hadn't lost all that time? So it's like this really hard thing to properly analyze. I certainly wouldn't have had my first book without it. And, and a lot of the curiosity that drove me towards a, a crippling addiction is also the thing that drove me to become who I am. So I don't think it's that drugs are like necessary to the creative Mm -hmm. process. I just think that a lot of artists do have this sort of wide open curiosity about things. And there's almost like there's no way certain people aren't going to try these things. Uh, So for a certain like mindset, I think it is good to get shit out of your system, but still uh, the, the thing with heroin it's like hmm. it's good for like the first two weeks and then it just like precipitously goes downhill right. uh, so I can't like recommend it <laughs> I would just say like I get it you know yeah there's different ways to sacrifice right and the gods of creativity demand sacrifice um, and some people sacrifice their time to oblivion and some people sacrifice their time to being a fucking nerd sitting in front of a computer typing words away like uh, many of our colleagues in the genre business but i think that uh that's really interesting you know all that lost time makes me think of like if you survive a drug addiction it's still kind of like committing suicide in reverse right where you've you sort of you killed a significant chunk of your time Right. If you were to tack that time onto the end, it would be like, you know, going out 10 years early, basically. But you just, you know, you just got ahead of it and did your time before you kept going. So I think that uh, that kind of uh, 
blood sacrifice, especially because heroin, uh, which I've never done. I was a speed guy too, like Ooh. RCs, you know, you can get them on the Silk Road, all those kind of analogs like 2CB and 2CI and oh, I did 2CB, yeah. It's just crazy, man. Um, stuff. But, uh, you know, when you do that kind of stuff, it's, yeah, it's kind of like you're just getting that, you're making an investment on your future as a, as a writer, I guess, you know? Yeah. Or you could just write, right? I mean, there's also, there's, there's that too, you know, it's, uh, it reminds me of the, who is it who was talking about character acting? There's that famous line where somebody was doing the character acting Daniel Day-Lewis thing and another actor told him, have you tried acting? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so there is that too, but I'm a mystic fucking uh, trippy psychedelic dude who uh, believes very deeply in spirits and gods and things like that. So I think you kind of, I mean, you got to give something up, right? You gotta, you gotta sacrifice something. Yeah, it's a baptism through fire. That's it. Yeah. And for yeah. some people of a certain curious ilk, like that, like I, uh, I search for the vibe and things and a lot of shit, I don't think I'd be able to understand or articulate without certain experiences that i did i don't see any point in indulging in anymore but without you know without lean would i have would i be able to understand some music without like like you know I, I try to you know preach the genius of young thugs to a lot of people who are just like what the fuck is this trash bro and like you haven't done the right drugs <laughs> i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's funny for me, like I, uh, you know, I got off junk in 2012 and then I was like stone sober for three years. And uh, honestly, like nothing happened for me at that point. I, oh, that's, I guess that's not true. I mean, by 2015, I was getting exhibitions and stuff for like, but that it was a long, slow roll. And then that kind of just totally collapsed. And um, by the time that I had met Michelle, I was working a regular day job. And, uh, but it also I had started like kind of partying again, using psychedelics and ecstasy. And I realized for me, like the stone sober thing just wasn't working out. I was just like too fucking bored. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give myself a break. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are maybe in the program that are going to listen to this and just have a hemorrhage. But yeah, I'm not totally sober. And I drink red wine too. But by the time that, um, by the time that Michelle and I were together, I had really kind of consigned myself to just like living a life of mediocrity. And I thought, and I was like, okay with it. Like I had already gone through all the steps of just sort of preparing myself to do nothing but work and like be a husband to this woman that I loved and I was okay. And then it was really the pandemic when everything kind of changed for me. Cause all of a sudden it was like that. It was like the first time that I had time that wasn't totally consumed by drugs 
but I had all that experience behind me and everything just kind of clicked all of a sudden. And it's really hard to like swear off anything that you've been through that when, when you're like already at this point. So, you know, if I could like go like, okay, if I could rewind to when I'm 16 years old and some fucker offers me, not some fucker, one of my childhood friends offers me an Oxycontin tablet and knowing what I know now, would I say no? Yeah, probably. But at the same time, it's, I, I can't feel ashamed about like whatever it is that made me who I am, you know? Cause I like my work now and I'm proud of what I've achieved and I can't discount any of the things that led to it. Right. That's huge. It's huge to sort of recognize this is how I've, uh, you know, of all the shitty and fucked up things that I've done in my life, the way that I have learned to move past it is that, you know, like I have my son, I love my son. I have my wife and I love my wife and everything that I did good or bad led me to that. So you can't really, you can't be too upset about some of these things, you know, because all turned out pretty well. I mean, I probably might feel different if I was dead. Uh, but you know, also if I was dead, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be, be at peace. The, be at peace be with at what peace. happened. <laughs> I'd be just at peace. I'd be like, well, that didn't, that didn't work out the way that I had hoped. Yeah. I had so yeah. much that I wanted to do, but, uh, well, I think that that's a good pivot point then to talk about uh, in the miso soup, right? And we can just kind of do broad strokes with miso. Kelby, did you have uh, some thoughts on this book? Which, by the way, is uh, after I finished it, I decided that's that's definitely my favorite Murakami so far. Uh, mm. it's just, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Fucking, it's fucking great, man. But I'll turn it over to... Yeah, this this might be I I'd, I'd probably say top five for me after reading of just books in general. Like yeah, the way that so I mean real basic summation of it, um, which not like it gets much deeper than this because really the the plot is just a vehicle for to explore a lot of uh, philosophy and uh, inner workings of the human psyche and um differences between western and eastern culture uh which is one of the most interesting parts of the book but it's this sex escort uh or what would you call guide like a sex tour guide uh yeah. this 20 year old guy in japan in shinjuku uh near the kabuki cho district um who is guiding this uh, fat American weirdo through a couple of nights of, you know, sex tourism, going to peep shows, going to uh, weird sit down sort of date interaction things. There's a lot of bars and like dynamics that are very odd in the places that they go to. Um, and even unclear to the the tour guide as to like does this is this going to culminate in sex or is this just like what's going on here but 
he's taken this American around uh, with the knowledge that there was just a uh, a young girl found chopped up in different body bag or different trash bags uh, in a very brutal way that he describes as a sort of an American way of killing someone uh, like a silence of the lambs style of killing yeah. someone. Uh, Cause yeah, I don't know. There's samurais never, you know, cut anybody up or anything. Hell no. They did that shit honorable. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, what you think might could be a red herring or for 50, 60 pages or so, you don't know, is this guy just weird? Uh, there's some things to sort of imply that is this actually in Kenji, the tour guide's head? Is there some kind of weird hypnotic psychosis going on here? It, it's not a red herring at all. Frank, the American dude, is... he's the killer he's the guy who's been chopping people up and he becomes in his mind kenji's friend or to him kenji is like his only friend and so it's a almost similar cat and mouse style as piercing is where the two you know murderer runner type characters are sort of like that kind of dynamic is subverted in this way that where it's like they complement each other they bounce off of each other and so it it also becomes sort of a will they won't they kind of thing where it's like kenji will he turn him in will he not will he escape will he not and frank it's like is he gonna kill him is he in control is he out of his mind is you know but it is this vehicle for exploring uh primarily purpose i think and um uh cultural appropriation as well there are differences like cultural fascination yeah the differences between americans and japanese people this book is super blunt about how Japanese people are versus how American people are, which is so, uh, it's become so sort of out of fashion in our modern culture to overgeneralize like this, even though generalization, if you're an adult, you recognize it as such and can extrapolate from it things that you can use to move forward in life. But the book is very just like, hey, this is what Japanese people do. And this is what Americans do. Right. Yeah, exactly. The uh, one of the this is earlier in the book, but one of the funniest things that that Kenji talks about is how America like wherever Americans go, they seem to kind of force their Americanness on everybody else. And he talks very specifically. This is like a, a, a perfume nationalist adjacent point about smoking. Right. And he says how like Japanese people or European, even European people would never think to tell someone who's smoking say on the street right that they shouldn't be doing that right that's something that you just leave people alone he said but wherever americans go they bring all of their baggage with them essentially so i thought that was uh when i read that i was like that is so fucking true yeah americans are such fucking busybodies yeah i used to smoke cigarettes before i vaped and i lived in portland and every time i went out to smoke 
some fucking blue haired tragedy would be like, <laughs> you're not, you're not supposed to, you have to be 40 feet from a building. And I'm like, bitch. That's bad for you. Yeah, well, some of the fucking piles of hormones you inject into your body, you fucking freak. <laughs> the seven up, the seven up slurpy cup of test that you're drinking right now might be a might be a problem too. But yeah, yeah. no, it's it was uh that and I think that that really when you read a book from a Japanese guy, right? And he's kind of critiquing American culture, you can see things that a lot of Americans might not see. I think that when you look at things like Twitter or our mainstream media or what have you, there's, there's this assumption that America is like the only country in the world, like in the world and our values translate everywhere else. And what this guy's saying is like, you know, you're, you're not like, this is Japan, dude. Like this is, it's absolutely place. It's kind of like what, you know, it's how Putin thinks about Russia. It's a separate society with its own values. And I don't want you to, but I don't need to get into that right now. Um, <laughs> That's uh, that Alexander Dugan shit, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different society. It doesn't Dude, need people to get be. so crazy about fucking Dugan. And like, I read his book and it was very repetitive because I think it was just like essays that he smooshed together. So a lot of stuff gets repeated. But basically all he's saying is that, you know, there's, maybe a different way capitalism communism fascism but what about a fourth way yeah and the american interpretation of that is like he must mean fascism <laughs> exactly <laughs> if anything my criticism of dugan is that he seems to think that there's like uh, a correct like combination of ideologies you can put together and gift wrap and like turn into a viable political city. like i think he overinflates uh, the power of belief a little bit um but what were we saying oh yeah all right i just read a fantastic interview with ryan murakami and uh aside from endorsing donald trump's 2016 presidential run he yes he did uh he also makes a interesting point especially when you have like the I mean, I guess Lost in Translation is sort of an exception to this rule because it's all about banality and whatever. But um, typically the American in Japan is like, holy fuck, this place fucking rules. There's fucking beautiful pussy everywhere. There's like all these sex bars and decadence and strobe lights. Um, And it looks so alien to us. But in this interview, Ryu Murakami says that Japan is alien to him because of exactly that. The the projected will and desires of American colonists. So it's literally kind of a, it's like a totally fluid society in which um, Americans and Westerners and Japanese people all feel slightly adrift in this uh, fluid society that has sort of tried to hold on to its values after World War II, but as many writers have well documented from Mishima to Ryan Murakami and otherwise have collapsed slowly over time. I think that that is what this, book is about 
because even though Frank does turn out to be the killer, the protagonist is still, um, there's that Zizek quote about the guy who's pathologically jealous of his wife. Um, that's still a pathology, even if his wife is fucking everybody, because if there's no material substantial proof, then it's still just like a maniacal tendency that can't leave your mind. That is kind of what is happening to the protagonist in this book. He doesn't really know what Frank is. So even though his fears are well-founded, it's still basically him projecting this social alienation onto this guy, his own anger, his own resentments about what's happening to his country, onto this guy. And uh, the, the book basically becomes about that, like a, uh, a distrust and a resentment of losing your own culture. And I think what's interesting, like what's cool about Ryu Murakami is like what I said before, his books like are very mass market in a way. They're very easy to read, very easy to sell. Um, kind of like Brett Easton Ellis in a way. It's very pop, you know, it, it pops when you read it. But uh, there's a lot of deeper shit going on um, about society right now. It's never about the past. It's never about the future. It's always right now. And it's always quite deep at the same time. Yeah, it seems to speak to this kind of like generation of disaffected youth in Japan that um, became really noticeable in movies like Porno Star. Uh, in, and it's made reference to in, in the Miso Soup, the, uh, you know, Kenji considers himself one of these kids who is kind of like, uh, there's a quote somewhere in it where uh, he's internally monologuing about how the generation above you know the parents will be like why don't you listen you're going to destroy yourself you're fucking up whatever and he's like why would i why would we listen to you we see you taking these steps you're trying to pass down onto us and we don't like how you're living so if that's what it leads to we don't want it and that um that sort of disaffected uh, detachment um, sort of feeling of no country, feeling of no uh, sense of belonging opens up all these doors to uh, any, other, any other kind of culture, like a cultural curiosity, a cultural uh, exploration, um, a sort of sojourn for a tradition that you're you're not uh you're not sure of that you weren't brought up in because you've sort of said fuck off to the tradition that you were brought up in um and there's a lot of great uh pointing out of certain japanese tendencies where he just says well Japanese people just think that's cool <laughs> it's something we say on the show a whole lot as to why uh 
we fuck with certain things from Japan is like uh, it it's just cool and it was funny seeing that in there of like why do uh why do these Japanese kids like dress like black kids in America it's Bro, like have you seen the Japanese they're cool. wiggers? like the dude the <laughs> Japanese wiggers are wild dude like they have cornrows yeah. and what's that uh Sion Sona movie uh Tokyo Tribe oh Did I haven't seen that, that one Oh no. man, that shit is fucking awesome. It's like a Japanese rap hip hop opera. Uh, and the whole plot, the whole, it's like this war of gangs. And the whole thing at the end turns to have started because like one of the gangbangers is mad that the other gangbanger has a bigger dick than him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't watch, uh, I can't watch Sion Sano movies anymore because he got me too. So <laughs> whoa, I didn't even know that. That's so yeah. sick. He's on the naughty list now. Uh, apparently, the man who made love exposure is a right. pervert. Uh, <laughs> Dude, uh, the girls thought. in that movie, anti-porno, are like the hottest women I've ever seen in my life. That's tight. Hell yeah. yeah. He's got a most discriminating eye for TNA. Yeah. I wanted to watch his Tokyo Vampire Hotel on uh, Oh yeah, Michelle Prime. and I watched that. Prime went through this really weird phase uh where they told their lower level execs to go out and find auteurs and have them make prestigious stuff like stuff and they had huge budgets for them. And Tokyo Vampire Hotel was one. Nicholas Winding Refn's uh yeah. Too Old to Die Young was yeah. another. And I wrote all a of those... six thousand word essay about too, too old to die young. Nice. Oh, nice. Dope. well, they uh, they all got fired. They all. Got fired. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, too old to die young was a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. And the uh, it was the best thing Nick Reffin has ever done. I agree. You know, it's 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 literally like a combination of. Uh, what Paul Schrader is called transcendental style in film. It's like incredibly slow and all the images are just drawn out and it's very atmospheric um, combined with like a Friedkin, like hyper postmodern sensibility, the whole thing. And just like so violent and so good. And I'm the like the prime fucking audience for this kind of show, right? Like if there's anyone who should have that fucking shit jammed into my algorithm, it's me. I didn't even know about the existence of the thing until two months after it had already come out. So I really think yeah. Amazon went out and got these shows and then just decided they didn't want them and underpromoted them to death. Yeah, they did. They, they said, what the fuck? Do we? we went out, we asked for, you know, geniuses to make genius shit. And that's what you get. And then they just, they didn't know what to, they didn't know what to do with it. So, but it is brilliant. It is good. Yeah. He's one of my, one of my favorite directors. One of my writer brags is I had a novella on his website and Ooh. he, uh, the editor of the website told me that he liked that in particular of that crop of writing pieces on the website. So that makes me cool, I guess, in a way. 
right Kelby? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah yeah no i think it's one of the best things you've ever written too thanks man uh, yeah. i gotta fucking read that shit yeah it's uh it's on the buy and wr uh website but um so in the miso soup uh basically does a really good job of ratcheting up tension to the there's this point where at the end of the first night Kenji, the guide, takes Frank to a batting cage, and they have this kind of back and forth bet going about, you know, if he if Kenji's able to hit the ball at this sign, then Frank will have his fee waived, and they get into a big fight, and Kenji obviously loses the bet, and then tells Frank that it's his turn. But when Frank goes into the batting cage, he gets completely autistic, and just like starts swinging the bat randomly, and that's really your first kind of indication that there's something seriously wrong with him but the book doesn't really spend a whole lot of time ratcheting that up any further like it's just basically after that there's a massacre right and he's breaking people's necks and he's chopping their heads off the aforementioned stuffing ears inside of pussies lighting a guy's face on fire which i thought was really well done because uh he's got all these people hypnotized and what makes the the gory scenes in this so effective is that nobody's acting the way they're supposed to when you're being murdered. Right. So the, the guy who is having his face burned off is like, he's kind of making like deaf guy noises <laughs> and kind of wiggling around. And then the, the woman who gets her head chopped off is like doing this weird thing where she's trying to grab the mic. It's almost like they're trying to continue the things that they were doing before they started getting murdered so i found that uh explosion of violence which is the only real bit of serious violence in the whole thing it's easy to forget that the whole book isn't this just you know one fucked up thing happening after the other there's this kind of centerpiece of violence but that was definitely one of the most effective ones that i think i've i've read it definitely got me hyped to write shit yeah you know who wrote a really sneering, snickery, faggoty review of this book? Who? Uh, Wesley Yang, the pseudo-based uh, tablet writer. Wesley Yang. Guy. Why does that name ring my ring a be- ring my bell? Why is he ringing my bell? <laughs> Why is he ringing your bells? He's sort uh, of like adjacent to some of us on Twitter, but okay. he's like one of those like. I'm a libtard, but I'm not a libtard. Libtards are cringe, but I'm also a libtard, so don't be mad <laughs> at me, such cases. guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's uh, a writer, basically. Yeah, he's a writer. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. No, writers, <laughs> yeah. Are, writers are unapologetic libtards. When Adam was talking about, uh, you know, COVID being his moment when everything calmed down and, you know, COVID was also really good for me because it permanently pushed me away from every writer community that I had been in because I had the audacity to say that COVID was fake. Nobody liked yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm very lucky. Like most of my friends are a uh, visual, like my real friends are mostly like visual artists and musicians, which are just as lip tardy as writers. But I have like a, all my friends are people that basically agree with each other which is really like a blessing. But yeah, Wesley Yang, he wrote, what did he say? This would be an absorbing enough bit of 
page-turning horror porn in the post-Tarantino mold for those with an appetite for that kind of thing. Oh, who likes sex and violence and art? I mean, oh my goodness. Uh, if, but Murakami is not satisfied to be a purveyor of sleazy sensationalism and insists on posing as the writer of relevance that some of his admirers have made him out to be. What do you mean? Some, he's obviously a writer of relevance. He's like a globally renowned writer whose movies are adapted into film and has won like extremely prestigious writing awards. I Millions fucking, of copies sold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I fucking hate this kind of like what? book criticism so much. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like typically- it's, the, it's of the genre yeah. of like the, it's, it's the, oh, he think he nice genre of- of criticism it's <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah exactly yeah, it's like oh who's this guy so like, what does he think he is a fucking legend it's like i don't sold more books than i have and he's much <laughs> yeah. more relevant than europe you'll ever be which by the way uh less relevant people have 100 percent validity in criticizing more relevant people that's not the scale at all unless the battleground that you want to meet this person on is their relevance at that point, you have to tread a little bit carefully if you're, yeah, you know, this guy or whoever. Yeah. My friend and I, Alex Beanstalk, have this new thing of like simplifying art criticism, which is like the richest artist is just the best, you know? So the best <laughs> punk band is Blink-182. Uh, yeah. You know, the best filmmaker is James Cameron. It's just Hell like... Yeah. <laughs> how could a billion people be wrong all right you know <laughs> what are we gonna do they're the best mcdonald's mcdonald's criticism yeah like, exactly hey, that's the t- that's the best food 87 billion sold dude i mean who are you to to argue i like that i like that in terms of uh because you know um it really does just sort of simplify things like you can just pull up their book scan numbers and say is this you yeah, you didn't, you didn't sell shit. I mean, about, and it's though? true to a degree, like not true, true, but it's true to the degree like Blink-182 obviously does have something compelling about it that everybody should be able to acknowledge, even though it's not like the deepest, most mature music. I mean, James Cameron is obviously a genius at what he does, you know? So, you know, sometimes this shit actually does mean something. Like if you're able to project a vision that that many people can grasp onto, it is an achievement, regardless of what people think, regardless of what poor fucking snobs in the art world think it means. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say like Kanye West is objectively a genius. Yeah. It's one of those yes art is subjective like you can like or dislike kanye's music or you can have whatever opinion of a a, as a person you know is that's totally fair subjective whatever you think but objectively yeah he's at that level because that's where he's at (laughs) yeah and he's an even more interesting case because like even though he is one of the most wildly successful people on earth he they're even like the most avant-garde like music makers in the world 
still have to give him cred. They're like, yeah, he's good. You know, what are you going to do? He's fucking good. And uh, I get this a lot too with uh, listeners of my show and readers of me know that I'm a John Frusciante aficionado. He's also another guy who like, like I have friends who are in black metal bands that have like the most rigid underground ethos ever. But if I mention that I, you know, worship John Frusciante, people will be like, go straight up. That guy is fucking sick. <laughs> I am so, I can't tell you. I feel like we just became friends uh, because I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers and oh, I love man. John Frusciante's uh, solo albums too. Oh man, I, see, that's the thing. His solo music is like incredibly important to me. Yeah, uh, it's just- The earlier weirder stuff and the more recent stuff. Yeah, he's in he's in touch with something. He's got the the spirit and the vibe. And I mean, I don't know much about music. I'm not a musician. And I, I don't I don't really know what constitutes technical skill besides sometimes they go fast and sometimes they don't go fast and sometimes they're doing <laughs> two things at once and that seems difficult. But in terms of songwriting, there was this phase that people went through. I don't know where this memo came from that the Red Hot Chili Peppers were garbage, dad rock, which is even that. I mean, dad rock's fine. Like, what's wrong with dad rock? For but, sure. And I was just like, I, 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 you know, I couldn't, it made me genuinely start to question, like, do I even know what good things are, right? Because if this is bad, then I don't know what good is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I said, I, we did a podcast recently about the new Chai Peps album. I've done like three podcasts just about the Chai Peps. We did one on the Anthony Kiedis memoir. Scar um, tissue. That book is yeah, fucking it's like, good, man. It's yeah. one of the best books ever. It's just a fucking retard talking about doing drugs and fucking. It. It's great. Yeah, it's just like a document of sex crimes that he doesn't seem to uh, <laughs> understand to be such. Um, but I, I said I was like the Chai Peps. They are kind of like a dumb rock band. They're like a Cali Wigger, uh, you know, the dope fried surfer band but they're the best dumb rock band ever. And, right. uh, and what's cool about Frusciante is like, he kind of knows that he's a bit above them and they kind of know he's a bit above them, but that's what makes the thing so fucking glorious is to have this like profound medley of hyper-retardation and and incredibly gifted and skilled and touched musician like John Frusciante. Um, like I've got, I mean, it's been a few records I like this year, but if I'm being honest with myself, the only thing that I've spun like endlessly in the car is the new Chai Peps album. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's this, the other thing about John Frusciante though, is his voice, he's like legit one of the greatest male vocalists alive right um, yeah. alive today mm -hmm. and uh like i would give every ounce of talent that i've ever accrued in my life just to be able to like sing that way mm -hmm. and um he remains weirdly cult as a solo musician given how extremely famous the chai peps are because i play him a lot in the car with my friends and my friends would be like 
you know, especially like the first record, Neandro, where it basically just sounds like Sid Barrett, but by a heroin fried guitar uh, hero, um, people be like, what the fuck is this? This is fucking good. I'll be like, I'll be like, you goddamn right. It's good. It's John Frusciante. Mm-hmm. And that like kind of makes him so much more exciting as a musician is like he's simultaneously famous as all hell, but also kind of cult in a weird way. That's a cool fandom to accrue. Yeah. And I think that balance is uh, absolutely necessary for the best, like for any kind of transcendently genius art, you need that mainstream pop element, retard element mixed with this like touch of of you know godly talent yeah like uh if if there's a if there's a mascot for the agitator podcast besides kakihara from ichi the killer picture the most beautiful woman that you can picture right all of her proportions are amazing and there you go and i was just about to say now also picture that she's that she's also the smartest woman you've ever met right she's a complete genius right she's you know she's got a hundred and whatever iq and you know she can do particle physics and she's a bombshell right so our mascot for agitator is that woman 69ing with a guy with down syndrome Yeah, my mascot is Ryan Gosling in The Believer because I'm a Jewish Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. You should have told me you were Jewish before you came on the podcast, dude. Yeah, I know. I snuck in. (laughs) No, actually, Jesus, I think it was Jack, actually, who brought up me as Ryan Gosling in The Believer once, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to run with that. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Well, I gotta I gotta piss real fast and get another jewel pod. Um, okay. What? How are you doing on time, Adam? Oh, I'm good. I'm just hanging. I'll just, just uh, use the restroom. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So we'll be back in just a second. All righty. You good, buddy? Hmm. Did Daddy fix it? No. <laughs> <laughs> What are you trying to do over there? Hey, can you say samurai? Nope. Nope. Just not going to do anything. Huh? Why are you still awake? So, power camp. Say power camp. I'm working now. Power. Hey, Dad. Yeah, I want to know power. Oh, pirate ship? I want to know. Yeah, I feel like we need to commission an artist to do a rendering of the agitator ethos as like a beautiful painting. That'd be great. Oh. There's so many other things in this book. I'm trying to think of um, the ending is like Frank's extended backstory. Yeah, it's uh, New Year's Eve. Um, and it becomes like more character. I guess we can talk about this on the show, but 
it becomes more i don't think i'm gonna cut any of this rowan was filling some dead space so (laughs) Uh, okay right on yeah uh so it's more it's more like character driven and it's good you know thematically and stuff but i'm trying to think of any more of that because like what's interesting conversationally about the book is all the social commentary stuff we've kind of already covered right that it's a you know it's a good book but he goes he goes into some crazy like every book of his we talked about this with jack actually welcome back adam uh we talked about this with jack about whether audition was a misogynistic movie or not right so that might be an, an interesting question to revisit about piercing and miso are these misogynistic books i mean probably but yeah not in any way that offends me yeah because they're japanese yeah exactly yeah plus like misogyny is i have this thing that i think like all men are at least slightly misogynistic and i i think it's like a thing that everybody has uh like being a good man is like pushing away from it as a as opposed to leaning into it because audition especially like it's misogynistic but it's also a little misandrist too like it's all these like pathetic men who can't connect to women they set up this you know it's not like letting men off the hook either uh Mm -hmm. so i don't think he's like uh you know i i for, for like great misogynistic art, I think you'd look more towards like Lars von Trier or someone like that than Ryan Murakami. Yeah. 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 Wellbeck for sure. Um, Celine for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ryan Murakami, yeah, there's like an element of contempt for women there, but I don't think it's like a particularly malicious one. Yeah. He kind of keeps the scales of anything pretty uh pretty perpendicular whenever bringing up any um even frank like the very well it once it becomes quite clear he's the murderer he's chopping up homeless people because he thinks he's better than them he's like even he gets plenty of moments where the scales kind of place him back in the middle where it's like well i mean okay you have a point there uh, mm-hmm. so murakami himself ha- maintains this level of detached uh curiosity and exploration through all these like qu- you know questions that he's bringing up and critiques that he's making it's never a clear um, statement or uh, none of the questions really get answered um, ever. I mean, it's kind of what you take from it. Uh, And I think a lot of this too, like a lot of this uh, interpretation and pondering critiquing of his work would, uh, if, if Kenji were in the room, he'd probably be like, you Americans. Your way of your way of viewing art, you know. Yeah, you know it's an intro. Like you know, I, I also think like there. Are, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reviews that compare this to American Psycho, 
and uh, maybe it's hackneyed to say to an extent, but I think there is some similarities in that American psycho Patrick Bateman, even though he's like totally insane, he also seems kind of rational given the way the, the world presents itself as. It's just like everything is hyper Baudrillardian fake. It's just like a network of brands and signifiers that mean nothing. So him like uh, maiming and murdering all these women is just his way of like bringing some, some of the real into this, into this hyper real, this, uh, this horror, this action. And, you know, I do think Murakami has like a, if he's hateful of anyone, it's probably tourists. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we go to Japan and what is so exciting about the place is just how fucking exotic it seems. It's, you know, everything seems strange and sex sexualized and horny inducing. And Frank is, uh, Frank's like the ultimate tourist. He is going there for exotic experiences. He exoticizes everybody that he meets in the book. So it kind of makes sense to an extent that he'd bring an extra element to these kinds of interactions. Yeah, thinking about going to a foreign country and you know the the whole exotic side. Like I, I was thinking about when this book came out, which was in the late '90s. Uh, the translation was in the mid 2000s, and I think about. Uh, so I had never been to. Have you been to Japan, Adam? I actually haven't. We were supposed to go there for our honeymoon, but they still have the 10 day fucking COVID uh, bullshit. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're going to Greece, Mamma Mia. Nice. There we go. I, uh, I haven't been there, but I, I did go to Korea. I spent a month in Korea in Seoul. And it was a month of like, you know, going to visit all these cool Buddhist shrines and what have you. But like the nightlife was, was crazy. So Rios and I would go shopping and, you know, all the malls are just packed full of people drinking Starbucks, uh, buying uh, name brand shit. And then we would go out and party. And there were these two hills in the Itaewon district, which is kind of where the foreigners hang out. But one of them is called Hooker Hill and the other one is called Homo Hill. And it's self-explanatory <laughs> what was going on on those hills. But we would hang out on Homo Hill at this bar called Lahom. And there was a guy there, uh, the, the guy who owned the bar. He was this, you know, just a big time homosexual. Um, and he had like silicone muscles implanted in him. And he'd be, you know, sitting on my lap and, you know, telling me like, are you into men or women? And I would say, oh, women. And he would say, I could be a woman, right? And, you know, the silicone muscles, by the way, remind me a lot of the Frank thing because it's very bizarre to feel somebody who's like plastic underneath. Yeah, but anyway, I say all that to say that when I was there and I was, I was born in 1986, so I wasn't alive. Uh, I was an adult, obviously, in the 80s in America. But while I was in Korea the whole time, I, I thought to myself, this must have been what the 80s felt like, right? Like cocaine everywhere, people just partying, having a good time, everything done to excess, everybody going to work and, you know, taking a bunch of speed and then going and partying really hard. So it is to me kind of interesting to connect that to in the miso soup, how 
these sort of cultural movements kind of coincide with economic progress. And it feels like countries go through their own periods of this, right? So that's kind of where in the miso soup feels like it takes place, right? There's this bustling sex trade and everybody's sort of having a good time, but at the same time, everybody's really alienated. Nobody can really link up. There are these weird OMEI pubs where you fill out, you know, index cards to tell a girl that you like her and shit. So I, I felt like that's another American psycho, you know, comparison. It's just that maybe Japan was 10 years behind instead of Korea's 20 or 30. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, but the other thing that's weird about Japan is like, there's this book. Um, there's a few things that have dealt with this concept, but uh, there's this book by David Novak. It's kind of boring to read, but it's uh, it's called Japanese. It's about Japanese noise. And uh, it's very like academic study of how noise, it like as a genre became codified in Japan and the kind of like cultural feedback loops that led to this very strange thing becoming the music that Japan is like best associated with. And um, I think you're totally right because Japan like it absorbs Western culture probably even more than we absorb theirs. Um, but there's a delayed effect, especially until like, especially through the eighties and nineties before uh, the internet was set up. Um, all these like cultural pathways would reverberate over time. And then by the time it got to Japan, it was to an extent a mimicry of Western culture, but still totally different and specific. Um, you know, think of like Japanese punk in the eighties. It's like, you know, Jism, mm -hmm. SOD, the Stalin, all these bands, they're punk bands. And yet there's something so much fucking freakier and crazier about it. Right. So it's like, by the time they get the culture, they're internalizing it as fans. And yet what they're expressing through this prism is still specific to them. Mm -hmm. um, this is also kind of what uh, Scorsese's very boring and um, disappointing film Silence was about, but the idea was still very interesting. These like uh, span these Christian missionaries are going to Japan, um, trying to teach them Christianity. And then there's this one character who's played actually by, um, fuck, what's this? Played by. Oh, yeah, Shinya Sukamoto. Mm -hmm. Director. He's the, priest. he's the priest in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's this guy who um, he continuously fucks up and betrays everybody that he loves, but he mm -hmm. loves Christianity simply because he thinks it means he can just. Uh, apostatize and be forgiven mm -hmm. so the priest like absolves him several times throughout the movie and it's like one of the only funny uh, likable things that happens in this otherwise dreary film 
I watched it on the flight to Korea, actually. Oh, fantastic. Hours. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and then at the end of the film, he runs into Liam Neeson, who is the priest that's already apostatized. And he was just telling him, he's like, look, straight up, you think you're doing a good thing? You're actually teaching something that totally doesn't translate, that never will translate, and will never be what you want it to be here. I think Ryu Murakami deals with this idea to an extent in which um, Western culture is constantly encroaching on his country, but it never truly sticks. Mm -hmm. And that creates, uh, that creates the kind of fluidity in the landscapes that he creates in these literary worlds. They're in the miso soup, so to speak. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. it, right? yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that that's great. And I think that that's a really excellent articulation of some things that Kelby and I talk about a lot on this show, which is uh, the appropriation and uh, surface level, never quite getting it appreciation for works of art and how inspiring that can be, right? If you, um, if you are, for example, uh, Japanese, you might be watching a movie by Tsukamoto or by Miike, and you understand all the little in-jokes and everything makes a lot more sense. If you're us, you don't get any of that. It's all much more mystified. And so we, we don't know what's going on, but we like it all the same because we feel the, the vibe that's going out, right? And I think that you can just make, if you're gonna copy and you should copy, you shouldn't copy American shit because that's too, it's you're too close to the source. You should be copying the copy of the copy to make something new. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's real, that's real uh, progressivism there is actually <laughs> just appropriating every culture. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, during my reading last week, um, I didn't want to do communions again because I got a little sick of doing it. So I was just like reading different entries from the safety propaganda conceptual manifesto. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was really leaning into the parts that I knew would offend uh, woke women because there were a few of them there. And I talked about uh, Sun City Girls, this band that has been constantly accused of cultural appropriation of Middle Eastern music. And I went on this whole thing about how cultural appropriation is just like total academic abstraction that is basically used to neutralize our own culture of new ideas. It's like a total control mechanism, Whoa. you know? Yeah. Why the, yeah, yeah. like, what, like cool, why bro. the fuck am I not allowed to be fascinated by worlds that are not my own. If anything, that sounds incredibly repressive and, uh, and uh, dogmatic. Like true open-mindedness is to embed yourself in something that isn't yours and to find enjoyment and fascination in it, you know, to find a limit experience in a world beyond your own. If that's not like the point of being a poor loser artist, then there really is none. Yeah, um, there is none, right? Or yeah. you end up like a lot of the writers who I know who are kind of mimicking whatever's popular at the moment. 
in doing that in a very cynical and artless way to kind of advance your own career and to, you know, there are writers I know whose whole dream in life is to be able to write a Star Wars book or something. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't wrap my, my head around that because I want to write like a new version of Berserk. You know what I mean? That's kind of where like the, the, the difference is, you know, but how do you feel about white girls wearing headdresses? Um, headdresses. Well, I, well, okay. So I kind of love all of that stuff now. Like I, even if I see like a, like if I see a white guy or white girl with dreadlocks, I think that's just like the most awesome thing. Cause it literally <laughs> means this person is ignorant of like 25 years of cultural and political discourse and it's just walking around with a song in their heart about aping a jamaican hairstyle like i i think that's i might get dreadlocks it's like chet when hank I can. style check chet hank style ignorance yeah right? just i like, mean that that z-way interview is hysterical it's like do you feel bad about mimicking black people he's like no yeah i just being a being taught to crip walk and at the age of six by by other six-year-olds who were you know i mean they were black and relatives of some gangbanging teenagers but like we were basically all on the same page at that point it's like yeah none of us are crips and this is just a thing that's being distilled you know that was my copy of a copy was like yeah man a little white boy non-gangbanger learning how to crip walk dude like totally i mean i grew up on cape cod the only black kid in my town was haitian uh like i moved from haiti but we fucking worshipped Wu-Tang Clan. You know, we'd ride around in my shitty Toyota Corolla, uh, you know, smoking blunts, screaming the N-word at the top of our lungs. I still uh, do that, by the way. Of course. It's like that Chris Rock joke. He's like, I know you guys are all leaning into the niggas when, uh, <laughs> when, that, when, when you're at your own house, and that's fine, you know, enjoy that shit. um like i really don't know like the 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 new taboos that have been made are like in the last 20 years are all so stupid that um it almost doesn't even it feels like an afterthought to like disregard them like i i just don't think about these things at all and i i don't listen to anyone who makes that kind of criticism like cultural appropriation is like the fakest fucking thing i've ever heard like mm-hmm. this is what this is what artists have done forever you know modigliani's paintings are all based on african artifacts that he picked up and he shouldn't feel any fucking guilt about that and he didn't do you think that wokeness has uh brought anything good to the world yeah it's brought a uh, well, I don't know. It helped helped my career out, I guess. <laughs> you know, hating by, by it. being by like by being antagonistic to it. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and being early to hating it. You know, right, 
Because right. um, now there's like, you know, I went to this uh, magazine launch a few weeks ago and they're doing like the pseudo base, like dirtbag left thing, like five mm-hmm. years too later, there'll be like one tranny joke or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there was this Asian girl <laughs> and um, <laughs> the announcer said that she created autofiction. I was like, what the fuck do you mean she created, like Henry Miller created autofiction like a fucking hundred years ago. And, um, and the announcer scolded me after the show because apparently she heard me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Liptards have always existed. They just take on like different forms. Right, 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 right. And, um, you know, wokeness is probably at its end right now. And I think so now- too. Yeah, yeah, I think it's over. I think people are getting back into just enjoying things to enjoy them. And I think that that comes off of the COVID, right? Because I think that COVID was the apotheosis of a lot of this kind of stuff. I, I think that more people than are willing to say so publicly kind of saw what was going on with COVID with, you know, two-year-olds thinking that power boxes or hand sanitizers and, you know, people basically saying on Twitter in front of God and everybody who follows them that non-vaccinated people should be put into camps. And, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I think a lot of people were like, oh, this is the same. This is just a different, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, obviously. I grew up in the church and um, the church had an outsized influence on my life and the way that I thought. And I was always trying to get away from that. And I think that with a lot of libtards, it stops with Christianity bad, right? Like Christianity bad is about all they got from that. Mm. And then they just go out and form their own thing. But for me, it was always about, you know, the control systems and making sure that you didn't uh, step out of line and Say whatever you want to say. I know that a, a big thing now is this weird gaslighting where, uh, you know, you pretend like something doesn't exist or if it does exist, that it's actually good. So they, they like to say things like cancel culture yeah, of course. doesn't exist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever <laughs> you is, think about that, like yeah. whatever you think about that, you can't, uh, you can't deny that there has just been an overall chilling effect that the human spirit is just not going to take for very long. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People love to party. They love to, uh, you know, watch cool stuff and listen to cool music and laugh. And I think it's pretty, it's, it feels over to me at least. Uh, It'll probably like remain institutionally just because it's basically the language of the ISA at this point. Um, Mm. uh, You know, like I, I, my second piece for my second column for compact was about the Whitney biennial and what's so shockingly bad about it is it doesn't even feel like a contemporary propaganda. Right. It feels like like two years ago propaganda, like it would have made more yeah. sense, like right after George Floyd got choked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that shit will always kind of linger. But I do think like regular people don't really give a shit anymore. I mean, um, that's one of the reasons why I fuck with Kelby so much. Uh, Kelby's been huge in, in my evolution as a person and just like, you know, having a good friend. Kelby mm-hmm. doesn't like, and Kelby's like, as far as I know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've, you've never 
giving a fuck. No. No, there's never been an instance <laughs> where I cared. <laughs> just don't. Never. Uh, when it seemed like I might have, it's just because I don't. I, like, I don't care. So I don't poke the bear, but I also just don't, like, you know, if the bear's mad at me, I'm going to shoot it in the face. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's crazy, though, is, like, um, they're, they're a small minority of, like, I mean, libtards are just, like, not most people are garden variety libtards. It's just that there's a lot of them in cultural spaces. But uh, I just did uh, Philip Best put together an anthology for his publishing company, Amphetamine Sulfate. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was nice enough to ask me to do something. So I wrote this kind of heady theory fictional essay uh, about what I call crypto transgression. And I didn't, I don't even think I was like trying to be uh, my most provocative self. Because certainly I definitely do that um, a lot of the times. Like I'll, you know, I'll say faggot and tranny and stuff like like use trigger, like well-placed trigger words. Right. Uh, but this essay didn't have much of that. It had some. Uh, I think I ranted about trannies for like one paragraph or something. But Philip told me, and this is what made Peter Sotos interested in my work, is um, Philip told me that that one essay got him more hate mail than the entire Sotos book that he just published. (laughs) So uh, these people do have like power still, and they're definitely still a problem. But without the problem, like the antagonism goes away and nothing is interesting anymore. So there's always got to be sort of like an interplay between those who get it and insufferable faggots. Um, And like, we should relish this. And, you know, I think now wokeness is going to give away for other things. And there's going to be really another, like the trad cats are going to be really terrible for a while. And, uh, they're, on the, they're on the come up, dude. They're they really the are. <laughs> in uh, Train Spotting, too, there's this hilarious scene where Renton and uh, Sick Boy have to go, they're going to this bar to steal credit cards. And they find out it's like a wignet bar for Scottish people that base their whole identity on this battle that happened in 1690, where the right. Scottish Protestants wiped the floor with Irish Catholics. Mm-hmm. So they sing this song where it's like, and there was no Catholics left. I'm just going to like, I clipped it and I'm just going to post that like anytime uh, a trad calf says anything on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like song about massacring Catholics. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, uh, Kelby, did you have any thoughts about Miso before we, uh, I want to talk real quick about system of systems and safety propaganda but i wanted to see if you had anything else about me so before we moved on um i i think we covered it that it's, cool. it's, it's a great book it, yeah. it's an example of i mean basically everything that we talk about on this show the 
uh, development of something new by taking from things that you don't understand um, and translating it into your own shit as well as pop sensibilities mixed with uh, yeah, pop retardation mixed with, you know, um, deep philosophy and yeah, no, I think we covered it. Great book. Yeah. 10 to 10. Yeah. Yeah. 10 out of 10 for sure. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit because I, uh, I think safety propaganda is great. I think system of systems is great. Um, for any listeners who might not know what those things are, can you give us a description? And, and just what, what are you doing with safety propaganda? Well, safety propaganda is technically a substack, but it's more of a concept. Yeah. Um, I had a very specific uh, conceptual project in mind when I started the platform. And it was, um, you know, I, I used the phrase to counter agency of the avant-garde, which I basically uh, envision as a loose network of counter agents or like creative people who just have ideas um, that are strange or um, uh, negatory to the broader cultural hegemony. And uh, I recruit people into the safety propaganda faction of the counter agency of the avant-garde who I think um, align with my ideas, maybe not like in my beliefs, but I align with the way that they think to an extent. Um, and then system of systems. And the other thing about safety propaganda is it's like, I, I structure everything in columns. So, uh, I mean, for the most part, there's some standalone, there's some standalone texts in there, but typically I just like, have, I have like eight never ending columns um, that I get to funnel different interests of mine uh, mm -hmm. constantly in perpetuity. Um, and then system of systems, even though it started before safety propaganda, uh, now that the project has become more cohesive, it's just like, it's the top show for safety propaganda. Um, and I, I'd say it's like, it's what makes it work is that when I write, I'm constantly in character. Um, like I very much consciously imagine myself as a as a character as a caricature version of myself when I write because it emboldens me to be like fearless and to and to just like say whatever I want. Mm -hmm. um, but system of systems, it's like just me. It's demystified. So it, I almost think of it as like you know I say it's system of systems, the audio misinformation arm of safety propaganda. So it's like. It's a talk show, but it's also like a strategizing arm of safety propaganda, like a meeting of the minds or something. Um, I don't think I've clarified all of the stakes of what exactly it is that I'm trying, because I'm still sort of 
building it as it comes along. But I still see this as like a broader project and safety propaganda in the near future will evolve into other platforms. I've, uh, I'm trying to put funding together to do a biannual magazine. Mm-hmm. And I also want to do an annual Hustler-like titty magazine. Dude, um, for real? Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's like a main up, goal. That um, is what's up. Yes. I'm, I'm, I, that needs to come back in a major way with the yeah. safety propaganda you know antagonistic sensibilities but also centerfolds that's uh that is a brilliant idea you know yeah and i already have like not to sound too perverted i just have like so many ideas for like shoots in my mind and um i have a friend uh who's helping me build the project out but this is actually very new we just decided to do this three weeks ago but i hope by the time uh you know my wedding's in a couple weeks and I'm hoping that I can get the magazine off the ground by like the fall and then mm-hmm. sometime in 2023 have like a once uh, once in a year safety propaganda titty magazine. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the cool thing about now is I suppose I am an artist, but I almost like don't even like defining myself as such just because the... Uh, everybody's an artist now so it almost just feels like i don't even want to be this thing that all these other people are so i come up with other ways to rationalize it it's like counter agent blah 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 but you know pornographer i'd be pretty cool with i like pamphleteer that's pretty that's fucking me. good yeah that's pretty that's good i got on my i put it in my twitter bio because i was like you know, <laughs> my books aren't really long enough to be considered i'm not a novelist just uh, putting out pamphlets but um well that's a that's yeah i really like the safety propaganda newsletter it's divided into two parts you got the base safety and the cringe propaganda and uh, base safety is everything adam likes and cringe propaganda is everything that he doesn't and they're both equally entertaining although i don't really click the links in the cringe propaganda because i'm like i get the idea yeah exactly (laughs) yeah um yeah, that's like the most common column because that's like the one that gets a lot of traffic. And I feel like I should usually do it at least every two weeks. But yeah, we also do like interviews. Uh, the safety propagandist interviews are just like artists who I feel are kindred spirits. Oh my God, the fucking manifesto thing that I wrote. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be like a short little project to keep my mind um uh, going because i'm i'm um i'm in the process of writing my second book right now and then the manifesto like totally overrode everything because it turned into like i think if i printed it as a book it'd be about 270 pages Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like 200 Mm -hmm. entries but yeah i'm very proud of that because i think like it i'm very proud of it as an artwork actually because i think it's like this really interesting way to just like demonstrate what makes my brain tick and I, it, uh, you know, I'm in negotiations right now, but Lev Parker from Morbid Books might want to do the manifesto as a physical product. So that could end up being my second book before my second work of fiction comes out. That's what's up. Well, yeah, that all sounds really cool, man. I, um, for uh, listeners, do check that out. 
go buy communions. Yeah, please. Communions is a, yeah, I really, uh, when I was, uh, you have a, a style that is very um, smart, but also readable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's comparisons there to Murakami, right? It is absolutely, it's, con- it's conversational in nature. It's meant to be propulsive. It's, uh, I, there was no point in the book that I got bogged down in, in, you know, purple prose or, you know, like trying to figure out what you meant by something. Um, but it's also uh, kind of like your, your prose reminds me of a, like a dog that I'm using a lot of dog metaphors tonight, but it's like a dog that's caught like a scent and is going after something, right? Yeah, so yeah. It kind of feels like you're hopping on the back of a bloodhound and going after like a trail of a wounded fox or something like that. Like you're, you're, you're moving towards something. And what's really good about communions, like I said at the top of the show, is that it's not necessarily that you ever necessarily, like you, you, don't, you don't always catch the fox, right? Because the point isn't to catch the fox. It's all in the, the chase. It's in the following the blood and asking these questions and trying to hunt it down. But sometimes you do. And that's also really satisfying. So communions has a, has a super high recommendation for me. And uh, thank you. Thanks for your time, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I love that description too. Yeah. I, I, uh, I like the term surrealist journalist as a, yeah. as a job descriptor. I want to put that in my, my 401k, <laughs> which doesn't exist. <laughs> LinkedIn page. Yeah. You should, exactly. you should post some shit that you say on Twitter on the on the on your LinkedIn page. You'll get banned and like, you know. I haven't even checked. I still have a LinkedIn page, but I haven't looked at too. it in like yeah. nine years. Yeah, me neither. Well, thanks for your time, dude. And uh yeah, this will be up on Thursday. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. And I will, you know, I'll talk to you on on the chats. Sounds good. Oh yeah. All right, Bye. later, guys. Be easy. Yeah. yeah. What's happening, New York City? It's your boy Ghost in the motherfucking house tonight. You know what I mean? We're about to get a poppin'. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Tell your crew to be easy. Niggas running around with the fake friends, sell them on eBay. Give word to the DJ. Tell them stay Allen's in the house, put the record on replay. Get your nose blown off by the fifth, uh.